The MacArthur resource we've been working through in this Wednesday night course or study ran out of chapters last week. So I have the chapter, I mean, I have the session without the textbook chapter. <gasps> what shall we do? Well, I did want, I, I you know, I think, I think pastors are with books like doctors with drugstores. So there is a prescription. Um, there's a book, the, 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 the talking points that I'm going to share tonight, which what I'm going to share tonight is, okay, if Jesus is God, then what are some things that are true? What are some things that are true? Applicationally, out there tomorrow where I've got to get up and live life, for some of you, get up and go to work, get up and live in my family, get up and live in my community, get up and follow my Savior, what does it mean that Jesus is God? My, uh, my major outline tonight comes from uh, yet another book. And I don't, I don't have a PowerPoint, but you can write if you care to. You can email me if you don't feel like writing in the Sounds like the book might be intriguing. The book is called If Jesus Has Come. His point is these are things that are true if Jesus has come. But if Jesus was just a guy, they're not true. So where his title is If Jesus Has Come, his title could have been Since Jesus Is God. And he could have written exactly the same book. And uh, the book is by Brown. The title, uh, If Jesus Has Come. And ramifications of that. So, some things that are true, and I'll even tell you how many there are going to be so you can pace me and realize I'm horribly off schedule by the time I get to the end. Nine. nine a nine-point outline. <laughs> Hope you brought breakfast. Just kidding. Stick around. Yeah. All right. We'll be all over the place in our Bibles, but most of you are pretty good Bible drillers or Bible app users. Here we go. Nine things that are true if Jesus is God. Number one, if Jesus is God, then we've heard from God. We've heard from God. We, uh, we recently have, as, as, well, let me ask you, anybody's, Homeowner's insurance getting simpler and cheaper in the last year? Okay. What if you had a 100-something acre campus and 400-something thousand square feet across multiple buildings and you had to have the equivalent of homeowner's insurance on all that? You think that's gotten simpler this year or do you think it's gotten holy wow? Well, it got really, really, really complicated. And the hard work of, of um, Brother Peter was certainly involved in some of that. Uh, various other, uh, uh, Steve Chestnut, who has served as an elder, who is a property and casualty insurance guy career-wise, got involved. Various insurance agencies who have served us in the past have gotten involved. Ultimately, it ends up that the major portion, we have insurance, by the way, 
the major portion of our property and liability coverage for this marvelous facility is with Lloyd's of London. Now, or soon, I think as of this weekend, or as of two Mondays, two days ago. Um, because I am in all things motivated sacrificially. Because I'm always willing to take one for the team. On multiple occasions, I offered Brother Peter that if we needed to hand deliver the cashier's check to the office of Lloyd's of London in London, I would be willing to make that journey and hand deliver that check. Not because I love pub food, not because I uh, love the city of London as a tourist, not any of that, just because I'm willing to take it for the team and hand deliver that check. So far, they have not required it. Yes, ma'am. You need someone helping with the You know, well, Brother Mark is grinning because Brother Mark is leading a mission team to London this summer. But I'm not going to let him do it. I'm going to do it because I want an excuse to go to London. They don't need the check hand delivered. What does that have to do with anything? Jesus hand delivered to us. He didn't send us salvation. He brought us salvation. And it wasn't a trip to an interesting place that a tourist might want to go. Hebrews, beginning of the book, first verses of Hebrews. We've heard from God long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through, through whom also he created the world. Now again, our, our global topic in this study has been that Jesus is God. Well, through whom also he created the world is one more strong affirmation of the deity of Christ, certainly, but the takeaway for us tonight, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If we've heard from Jesus, we've heard from the Father. And the message was delivered by him in connected intimacy. Stone tablets from Sinai? Yeah, he can do that. Pillars of fire and cloud, he can do that too. Talking donkeys. He did that one time. Thundering prophets shaking their bony fingers in the face of rebellious kings. Jonah with seaweed hanging off his clothes, crying out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He came. At the end of it all, he came himself. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard from the Father. We've heard from God. Now, Passed him on the street, you could pass him on the street. He didn't quite come incognito because he did not keep his identity a secret. But he came in a relatable, low-key way. 
we've heard from God. Number two, hey, I'm not bad. I might make it through all nine. Number two, my life has meaning. My life has meaning. I, uh, I was at lunch with a sweet couple that I love who are about to get married. Uh, well, it's, it's Christ, Christian Miller on our staff and, and his fiance, uh, Abby. And they're about to get married and they're all, they're all in love and stuff and, and it's, <laughs> it's fun to hang out with them. And they've, they've allowed me the privilege uh, I'm, not, I'm not doing their ceremony. I'm not doing any formal premarital counseling, but Christian and I are very good friends. Um, anytime I show up on video around here, I'm working in an environment that Christian Miller has designed. And while I ultimately control the words that are coming out of my mouth, I take a lot of coaching regarding, maybe here's a way you could say it. And he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's a genius. And one of the joys of being where I am in ministry and, you know, Carrie, Mark, you have the same experience. Guys half our age who are just absolutely geniuses sometimes tell us how to do stuff, and they're right. And we get to have the wisdom and the stability, but they get to have the crazy new ideas that are, in fact, really good. And it works out really, really well. But Christian is my friend. And I told them the other day at lunch, I said, there are two books that if I was a Bible manufacturer, and I'm not, if there were two books in the Bible, if I were a Bible manufacturer, every Bible sold would have a seal around two books and, and instructions, do not open this until. Now, God didn't intend that because he didn't seal those books up, but I'm just saying if Russell was selling you a Bible, I would put a seal on the Song of Solomon and say, do not open this until you are either married or right about to be. Because the Song of Solomon is about romantic, dare I say it, sexual love. No, it's not. It's about the relationship between Christ and the church. No, that's just creepy. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't. It's about romantic love with sexual fireworks. Do not open this. <laughs> Unless you're married or about to be, you can't handle the truth. I would seal the book up and say, do not, you, you, when I've said that to teenagers, I said, I've just guaranteed you're going to have a quiet time tomorrow in the Song of Solomon. <laughs> I just sent you right into the Word of God. The other book I would seal, and they're both by Solomon. The other one that I would seal is Ecclesiastes. And my seal on Ecclesiastes would say, open only when you're quite old. Now, I think a younger person can read Ecclesiastes, but I think the message of Ecclesiastes most resonates with people who've got the mileage. Because the second thing, again, if, if Jesus is God, here's the second thing. My life has meaning. Ecclesiastes spends a whole lot of time poking holes in places where people go to look for meaning. It's a cynical book. I have said to some of my enthusiastic colleagues down the years, okay, if that's the way you want to chase the wind, oh, we can chase the wind that way for a while if that makes you happy. In terms of our big ambitious plans. 
we make our, and I'm not knocking it, I'm just saying you know, those of us who are, as I like to say it, those of us who are no longer encumbered by excessive youth. <laughs> and I respect young people. But those of us who are no longer encumbered by excessive youth are free to say, well, yeah, you can, you can take a shot at that. I even hope you take a shot at that. I even hope you succeed as you take a shot at that. A thousand years from now, it's not going to matter. But if you want to, if you want to, you know, if that's the way you want to chase the wind this year, because that's kind of, that's kind of the message of Ecclesiastes, right? And then when all the wind chasing is done, when you build something amazing and then some clown comes behind you and knocks it down, when you experience the merriment of good food and, and good drink and good company, and then it all goes south. When you, when, you, when you rejoice with a great family and then they're gone. And you realize, well, that too was vanity and chasing the wind. I told you don't mess with this till you're old. Because with a young person, it would make you think, what's the point? For the quite old, it says, oh, all along, the only point was at the very end, love God with everything you've got. Love God with everything you've got. The rest of it was all chasing the wind. Enjoyable. Much of it Christ-honoring. But when it came down to it, it was all Jesus. If Jesus is God, my life has meaning. I do this exercise sometimes with rooms. It's always fun for me to do this. Um, raise your hand if you can name both your parents, biological or adopted. Raise your hand if you can name both your parents. Living, dead, biological, adopted. Okay. Now, keep your, keep your hand up. If you get uncomfortable, put your hand down. But if you, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up if you can name all four of your grandparents. Not bad. Kept a lot of them. I can still do that. Keep your hand up if you can name all eight of your great-grandparents, just their first names. Woo, we lose a lot of people right then. Okay, are you a genealogical hobbyist or just have a great memory? Genealogical hobbyist, yeah, there's always a ringer. Okay, you know that if I go to 16, I'm gonna lose everybody except the ones who've got a book at home where they've worked it all out, right? You do know that's you in two or three generations, right? <laughs> My three-year-old grandson, Levi, who calls me Boomer and whom I enjoy life with, we have a great time together. His children may or may not have any idea who I ever was. That's what I mean. If you're looking for meaning in life, unless you happen to get carved on Mount Rushmore or something, Odds are your great-grandchildren won't be able to name you, and your great-great-grandchildren certainly won't. You're chasing the wind if what you think you're going to find real meaning in is the stuff of your life. But if Jesus is God, and he has loved us and made us his own and installed us into him and, and made us a part of that, then our life matters way beyond the boundaries of great-grandchildren who won't know our name. The rest of it, look for meaning somewhere else 
my old, my old, old friend Solomon says, look for meaning somewhere else. Just know that at the end of it, you may as well just chase the wind across the meadow. That's what it will ultimately mean apart from God who has come. Okay? My life has meaning. My life has meaning. Number three. If Jesus is God, then Satan has lost. Satan has lost. I know he's a roaring lion. I'm reasonably familiar with, with, uh, with 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 5. I know that he is an adversary seeking to pick off people. I know that he is bigger and badder than I intrinsically, than I fundamentally am. I get that. But ooh, I have a big brother who has crushed him. Past tense. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason he appeared, past tense, that's talking about the incarnation, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, nobody but God can do that. It's a practical application of his godness. One of the one of the most distressing things I have sometimes heard from brothers and sisters in Christ is what I call sort of a, a creeping dualism. Dualism is not is not just a theology construct, it's a philosophy construct that finds its way into some of the world's religions theology. Dualism is the belief that out there somewhere there's a great big cosmic good guy and a great big cosmic bad guy. And they're essentially balanced. And you live your life in some sort of running tiebreaker between the cosmic good guy and the cosmic bad guy. That, that kind of, sort of, on some level, could be in, intuition-wise, maybe that, that could feel true. Good things happen and bad things happen, and, and I'm navigating the tension between good things and bad things, so, oh, 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 okay. And then you, you, you come into Christian theology and you have labels. You have the God who is, and you have Satan. There they are, names for the cosmic good guy and the cosmic bad guy. And they're in some sort of ages-long shooting match. That view is false. That view is wrong. There is no dualism in Christianity. Satan is an inferior foe. He is a created being. He is as, he may be bigger and badder than you are, but he is finite. You know, we hear about the, we hear about the Battle of Armageddon. Have you, ever, have you ever actually read the narrative of the battle? You know how the living God, you know how Jesus wins in the Battle of Armageddon? 
He does two things. He shows up and he speaks. And the big, bad battle of Armageddon is just that long. Because the living God shows up and speaks and his enemies are... <laughs> Satan is defeated. He is right now living the life of defeat. Now, I know that a whipped dog on a short leash can still snarl, even still snap. But the activity of Satan is bound by the victory of a sovereign God. His works are destroyed. He's not God's equal. You are not the rope in a tug of war between God and Satan. It is not a white dog and a black dog and the one that wins is the one I feed the most. Heard that one too many times. He is a massively inferior defeated foe. And when he comes and messes with you, or one of his demons wants to come and mess with you, you tell him, take it up with my Lord. Buzz off. You remember the seven sons of Sceva that were messing with the, uh, if, uh, in, in Ephesus? I love this story, Acts 19. They thought they would, they, they, they'd heard about Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. They'd heard about Jesus. They thought they could throw his name around. And it ends up, when they attempted an exorcism, a demon beat them up, stripped them naked, basically pitched them out a window. So they had a problem because they didn't know Jesus. But the demon said to them, when they, when they came at the demon and they said, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of this guy. You remember how they responded? They said, Paul we know. And Jesus we know. Meaning, if they show up, we know we have a problem. But you, who you think you are, beat up, stripped naked, pitched out the window. Pitched out the window, I added, but I just, I see it like a bar fight, you know, in an old Western. Child of God, do not treat Satan like a respectable foe. Treat him like a, like a snot-faced little four-year-old that wants to run up and kick you in the shin. Resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you. He will flee from you. He's got nothing against a prayerful, scripture-quoting, fire-breathing child of God. Don't give, oh, he'll make the noises. And worse, he'll try to get at you with subtlety and like he did in the Garden of Eden, yeah. His favorite method of attack is sweet reasonableness. Just know the word of God and watch for him. Resist him, he'll flee from you. He's defeated. If Jesus is God, then his victory over Satan is full, final, and forever. Number four, if, if Jesus is God, then love has won. Love has won. The living God has set his affection on his children. And... The battle is over. We talk a lot about eternal security. The basis of our eternal security is God's unchanging love for his people. Uh, verse 39 of Romans 8 says, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
But if we go all the way back to verse 31, check out the paragraph. The paragraph before is pretty rich too, but if I do that, soon I'll be wanting to read the whole book of Romans to you. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw a line and start in verse 31. He's just been talking about God's love for his people and that God, God has saved for himself a people. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? To God's loving purpose and the salvation of people. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Pretty clear implication is take your shot, right? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now that's, that's courtroom language. And it would be like you've appeared before the Supreme Court, you've argued your case, the Supreme Court has ruled in your favor, and as you walk out of the courtroom, some Mayberry cop tries to rearrest you on the same charge as though the Supreme Court has not already ruled. Child of God, the Supreme Court has already ruled. The basis of your eternal security is not your ongoing good behavior. Though if you are a child of God, you are being transformed. But the basis of your eternal security is the fact that the Supreme Court's already ruled. Matter settled. Case closed. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Love has won. Shall tribulation. We've all had our share of that. Or distress. I bet most of us have had our share of that. Or persecution. Probably not many of us yet. Maybe. Or famine. Or nakedness. Or danger. Or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. By the way, that's normal Christian life and existence. We live in an oasis, you and I. I'll say more about that next week. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, i got to stop for a second. That word, more than conquerors, it's the only place in the entire New Testament that word occurs. It is nikeo, which is the word for victory from which the Nike sneaker company gets their brand name. It's the Greek word nikeo. It means victory. And the prefix is hooper from which comes the English prefix super. It's a, it's a compound word. In all these things, we are super Nikes. We are super conquerors. We are more than conquerors. It's a, it's a pretty profound word that it applies to you and I because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation in case I miss something. I added the in case I miss something. That's not there, but that's the meaning of ending his list with, by the way, anything. 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love has won. We can rent space in a seminary cafeteria and sip expensive coffee and argue and talk and theorize and do all kinds of historical and biblical, biblical theology all day long to try to work out the final nuances of all the interaction between how the human will functions and how God's will functions in the utter intricate mechanics of salvation. That's why they build seminary cafeterias. You can eat anywhere. But if you're going to argue that, you have to have a seminary cafeteria to argue it in. But we love him because he first loved us, right? I think, I think he said something very similar to that. We love him because he first loved us. And it is his love. If, yeah, if you're born again, you've responded to that love. And that's a marvelous thing. But you're born again because he loved you. And you are kept saved because his love for you is not something that he's negotiating in an ongoing way. And if you want to take the position that you can be separated from the love of God, then you've got to come up with something that is not created. Because he's ended his list of things that can't separate you. He's ended his list with anything else in all creation. So the only thing that's not created is him. And he has already spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Love has won. Child of God. Labor for your master. Live in obedience. Follow Jesus. Do not strive as though by your effort you have love yet to earn. You'll just be crazy and neurotic and insecure and worn out. And I don't want any of us to be crazy and neurotic and insecure and worn out. Love, love's won. That fight is over, child of God. Number five, death has died. Death has died. Jesus, who is God, has put to death death. I do funerals. I bet I go to more funerals than you do. Occupational hazard. Some of you have been to some funerals, and I'm, I'm you know, I, 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 my to-do list every week, at least every month. Second Timothy 1, I'll jump in the middle of the sentence in verse 10. He's talking about the gospel, and he says, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It is appointed unto man once to die. Death is not to be personified. Death does not have a personality. But if death did have a personality, if I were death, and it's appointed unto men once, to, if it's appointed unto everybody to die, and I'm death, I got some strut. I got you. You end up with me. Do whatever you want to, but me and you are where it's all, you know. If I'm deaf, I am the big bad. Until somebody dies and it doesn't stick. 
That is the end of my dominion. I am no longer undefeated. And I don't mean everybody else. Oh, Lazarus? Okay, okay, Lazarus. You got to go into some overtime. I'm still waiting. I'll get you. Not so, Jesus. Jesus walked out of that tomb and said, all right, death, I am done with you and you are done with me. So much so that I have, I have demonstrated that I am eternal. You are transitory. You know what? You won't find anything in the New Testament after the resurrection of Jesus that speaks of death in a negative or fearful way. Death is mentioned, but it is never mentioned in a cautionary or fearful way after the resurrection of Jesus in your New Testament. He got his teeth knocked out. He's lost his swag. He's no longer the big bad. He's done. He's done. When my, when my friend, at around 10 o'clock yesterday morning, when my friend, Troy Miller, broke the tape at the finish line of his earthly race and got to be that far past that finish line, I don't know exactly what he thought, but somewhere in there, something like, well, that wasn't so bad. And look at where I am. That is the death of the believer. Death's died. Death's no longer the big bully on the block. Number six, I'm forgiven. Jesus is God. I am fully forgiven by one with the authority to do so. Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here's what happens. A lot of y'all, like me, have been a Christian for a long time. My pool is not heated at my house. We have a pool. It is on the north side of our, of our house, and our house casts a shadow. There's about 10 weeks a year that I'll go in my pool anymore. When my boys were younger, and come on, Dad, let's go swimming. Ain't nobody saying that to me anymore. My dogs don't even like the pool. <laughs> and there, I am certain there have been calendar years. I, 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 I have a guy who... I have a pool service. My pool is kept in really good shape. My pool is swimmable right now. You know, there's the, it, it's chemically balanced. The water is clear and the pool is clean and I can't stand in a nasty pool. So I want the pool kept completely clean. I'm quite certain that, especially since my empty nester period, there have been years, literal years, where no human being has put a foot in my pool. But there it is. You know, when you jump into an unheated pool, how that first, whoa, 
And maybe you're a polar bear. Maybe you like that. I don't. But what's, what's the phrase we use after you've been in the pool five or ten minutes? What do we say? It's cold out here. Yeah, we say it's cold. All right, I like you, but what's the, what's, well, you was bad when I first jumped in, but i gotten used to it. I've gotten used to it. I, I think when, we, when we've been saved for a while, And we, we understand that salvation includes this component of, of forgiveness. Lord, have mercy on us. I think we get used to it. I don't think, it's, I don't think it is the daily shock it ought to be. And I know me... And not because I've been following you around with a, with, a, with a spy cam, but because the word of God tells the truth, I know about you. It's not personal, you understand. I think our forgiveness ought to surprise us more than it does. I don't think we should get used to that. Now, I don't mean that we should doubt it. I don't mean that we should be insecure in it. I just mean that, wow, that we got when we first jumped in, when we first realized who we were in the face of a holy God, what our track record really looks like, that the difference between us and the most despicable human being that's ever lived isn't that great in the sight of a holy God. Brother Russell, what did you just say? The truth. I'm forgiven. I've committed enough sin today to send me to hell forever. I have had hours of ingratitude where I passed for a whole hour doing stuff and had never stopped to thank the Lord for his good gift of the very air I was breathing. That sin, I had a lady write me a note one time, Sunday morning over there one time, I, I made the statement that your ingratitude for gravity when you first stepped out of bed this morning, that sin is sufficient that you would be sentenced to hell forever for it because you're told to give thanks both in everything and for everything. So if you're failing to be thankful actively for the Lord who gave you gravity that you're not flying off the planet right now, that sin is sufficient to condemn you forever. A lady wrote me a note on one of our little comment cards. I'm keeping these. There's a book one day. Surely you don't believe that God would condemn people for such minor sins. And she didn't sign it, so I couldn't write her back. If, if you're her... Let's talk. Where in the world did you get the notion that it takes major sin to condemn you forever? God is an absolutist. It's in the nature of holiness. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Chase that rabbit someday. But there are not degrees of condemnation. One is either condemned or one is forgiven. 
That switch only has two settings. And all it takes for condemnation is to one time, one time, for one instant, fail to, owe God, fail to obey God utterly. And you're condemned. It's that bad. And the big things you remember, rebellion against parents, theft, lying, forgiven, forgiven. Done. The sin you have committed, the sin you have yet to commit in terms of justification and innocent standing before God. Not that long ago, someone asked me, are you saying that the death of Christ on the cross even forgives my future sins? And I smiled and I said, which sins did you commit before Jesus died on the cross? They were all future sins when Jesus died on the cross. Of course. I have to make a list every day of every sin I commit so I make sure I ask forgiveness of them. How good a stenographer do you think you are? <laughs> and how loosely have you defined what it is to sin? Sin oozes out of every pore of our fallen, broken flesh and encounters in the child of God the overwhelming adjudication of forgiven and innocent by the grace of Jesus because of his blood on the cross. You are that forgiven. You are that forgiven. You are not some lesser version of forgiven if you keep getting it right. Because you're not gonna keep getting it right. You've never gotten it right. He has adjudicated you innocent, not because you deserve it, but in spite of the fact that you don't. Because he's God, and there's nowhere for an appeal to go once he rules. That, by the way, when, when sin comes up in a passage that we teach, and we teach through books of the Bible, so we deal with things that come up as they come up. Um... When specific sinful behaviors come up and the gospel is viewed in light of those sins and failures, we're not trying to make saved people feel guilty. We're trying to remind saved people how grateful and in love with Jesus they ought to be because of the sheer magnitude. That's what the law does in the life of the Christian. It keeps you sharp in your love for Jesus because it keeps you sharp in your appreciation of who you are and what he's done. Whew, I'm forgiven. I like that. I'm quite fond of being forgiven. Hmm. Number seven. I have a hero. I have a hero. I have a hero. I wasn't projecting, I'm sorry. 1 Peter 2.21. 1 
For to this, and he's talking about the gospel, he's talking about godly living. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I have a hero. I have a role model. I have lots of people that I admire. I am blessed to have lots of people that I respect and look up to. Lots of people, some, some historical figures, some larger than life figures that I've watched from afar but never really got to know, and some, some people right down here in my life that I, I, get, to, I get to lean on their wisdom and, and tap on their ability to think things through and watch their lives and take notes, and I'm, I'm so blessed by all of that. Every single one of them is unreliable. Every single one of them breaks down if I look hard enough, long enough. I am a, I am a big fan of the Reformation. I've stood at the Wittenberg door. It's the different door now, but the doorway where old Luther nailed his 95 theses. Can I tell you I'm a fan? Can I also tell you he was a drunk and a radical anti-Semite? Martin Luther breaks down. And I'm a fan. I believe he knew God. I believe he accomplished some remarkable things. But he doesn't work as an unqualified hero because I don't want to be a drunken anti-Semite. If you think I'm being unfair to him, read a good biography of Martin Luther. Um, I think, did Eric Metaxas write Luther? I think he did. It's good. But if you read a truthful biography, you'll find out very, very flawed human being was old Luther. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. And by the way, I picked on Martin Luther. Can you and I agree I could have picked any name out of a hat except for Jesus and we'd be having the same sort of conversation? Some things to admire, some things to emulate, some things to learn from, but don't follow him unconditionally because his fallenness will show up and you'll be disappointed. But I have a real hero in Jesus. I used to joke during the WWJD bracelet era when, you know, what would Jesus do? The problem with, with, with asking that question, he's got options you don't have. If you're caught in a storm at night on a boat and you're in fear for your life and your answer is what would Jesus do, speak to the storm and see what happens. You've not got all of his options. But the idea is still a pretty good one because you've got a hero whose example you can follow. All right, number eight. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred, past tense, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Because Jesus is God, it's his kingdom. It's his kingdom and his death on the cross has, has provided for a people to join in that kingdom with him. We belong with him. We identify with him. His victory. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't around for VE Day or VJ Day. 
scanning the room, I would guess none of you were either. Or if you were, you might, you might have some super early childhood memories of the end of World War II. The folks that remember that vividly, well, time is passing, isn't it? But I, I, I've, seen the, I've seen the newsreels, and I've seen the photographs, ticker tape parades, and you know, guys kissing their girl in the street, and all that stuff. And a lot of the people in those pictures never picked up a weapon in that war. We won, we won, we won. Who's we? Who's we? The guys you sent overseas to back, to back Hitler out of France, finally into the bunker in Berlin till we were done with him, they won. At the end of the big war, it's we won, we won, we won, whether you took up arms or not, and I don't mind that. War was fought under our flag, we won. Sports teams. We won the Super Bowl this year. Funny, I watched part of it. I didn't see you. <laughs> I saw 11 monstrous guys bouncing off of another 11 monstrous guys and some overproduced TV commercials. And one more time, a halftime show I couldn't make heads or tails of. I have, out, I have aged beyond pop culture. You might be older than me. If you're older than me and you still get it, good for you. I have come to peace with the fact that pop culture no longer aims anywhere near me. I do not know who these nice people are. The, the, the expecting lady in red and the people in the hazmat suits. And I said, I think, I think I have aged beyond understanding any of this. High tech. I guess. Float around on platforms. That part was pretty cool because I liked the engineering of it. At any rate, we won, we won! We weren't even there. But Christ has brought us in to a victorious kingdom. And when we praise him, we will say to him, you won. But when we talk to each other, we can say, we won. We won. We are joint heirs in this victory. Ooh, we didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But we won. We will have won. Fully and finally one day. We're sharing his victory. Because he's God and he's given it to us. And then finally, I am going to finish on time with even a little bit to spare. Number nine. History makes sense. If Jesus is God, History makes sense. I didn't say it'll make sense to you. Not yet. Revelation twenty-two thirteen. 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Adrian Rogers was fond of saying, um, if you know that is great, if you don't, pastor, uh, with which I had once had years ago the privilege of serving and whose who's preaching I very much admired. Um, I remember it like it's yesterday, him saying, 
<clears throat> you ask me who you ask me what this world is coming to, I'll tell you, dear friend, it's coming to Jesus. Because he's the alpha. He's already plotted the whole thing. He knows the conclusion of the whole story, and it ends with him on the throne. Period. End of discussion. Acts chapter 17. Paul, in one of one of There aren't that many sermons in the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul preaches the gospel to a non-Jewish audience. The Mars Hill sermon in Acts 17 is the most fully developed sermon from the preaching of the Apostle Paul to a predominantly Gentile audience. I, being a Gentile, going way back, am very, very fond of this sermon because he doesn't open with the God of our fathers who led our fathers through the sea. You know, like he does often. He opens here with God as creator. But in the course of that sermon, he makes this statement. Acts 17, 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. History's him. The rise and fall of nations, it's him. Are we called to faithfulness as we live out our citizenship? Let me help you with that. You can end that question with, are we called to faithfulness? And write the rest of the sentence to be anything you want to. You're called to faithfulness in how you separate the laundry at home. So of course you are called to faithfulness in how you live out your citizenship. But woo, you will, you will chew yourself up if you believe that something has just been wound up and left to run to its own devices and we'd better get it right involving the unfolding of history. There's not going to be enough acid reflux medicine in the medicine cabinet to make you comfortable. Be faithful. Be engaged. Be passionate. Just know that your, your capacity for being passionate about topics is a finite list. And you can only give yourself passionately to so many things on that list, so choose what's on that list wisely. It will be different for different people. Well, I just know that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Ooh, that's another dumb one. Because sometimes neither the problem nor the solution have anything to do with you. But sleep at night and know that the unfolding of the history of nations is his authorship, not your cause and effect. Brother Russell, are you saying that we don't matter? We matter because we matter to him. If you want to chase the wind politically, chase the wind. I think Ecclesiastes might even have a paragraph about that. I don't remember. Just know that it all comes down to Jesus. And he's God. And he's come. And he loves you. When it's all said and done. History has meaning and makes sense 
because it's, it's his. It's his. He is sovereign over it in every detail. That's either really, really comforting to you or really, really troubling. And I can't tell which. So here's what I would ask of you. If that's really, really comforting, in the car on the way home, have a conversation about why that's so comforting to you. To know that he is utterly in charge of the unfolding of history, that he really is the Alpha and Omega, the first and last, beginning and the end. He really has uh, made of one man every nation all mankind and has determined the allotted periods of the nations and the boundaries of their dwelling places. If you find that tremendously comforting, talk about it in the car on the way home. If you find it tremendously troubling, talk about that in the car on the way home too. And find out why that bugs you that he's that big and that powerful probably doesn't bug anybody in this room, but in case it does. God. Big, powerful, enthroned, creator, master of all, the great big deep voice British guy on the video. Came. Lived walked, sweated, bled, touched, loved, redeemed, and is quite inexplicably fond of you and me as his children. Jesus Christ is God. 